Hello listeners, Adam here, Adam from the future, or at least a future version of the Adam who's talking to a past version of Joe in the podcast you're about to listen to. This was recorded in the first week of June for the most part, and you'll notice when we're talking that we're referring to things that already have changed. So for instance, we'll be referring to the idea that restrictions might be ending on the 19th of June. At the time you listen to it, that date has passed and obviously restrictions didn't lift. So this is just a quick note to bear that in mind as you listen. Uh, But thanks for your patience, thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Between Times. Hello, if you've got time, then it's time to make time, stop marking time, and take time for the Between Times. Hello there, and perhaps you, Adam, would like to start by saying just what the flip we were up to there. Well, this is a show for what we're going to call, and what we hope are, the Between Times, as we sit balanced on a razor edge to find out whether the government are going to lift remaining restrictions on the 21st of June. They won't do that. Oh no, you're not all sad again like last time, are you? Did the satire not help with that? Well, the sun's come up, hasn't it? But then again, so have the daily cases by quite a scary amount. So it's perhaps fair to say that like a lot of people at the moment, I'm perhaps a bit uneasy. But what we could do, I thought, is just try and have some satire and see if we can chase those clouds, those metaphorical clouds away and make our moods match those blameless blue skies outside. Oh, so you want some pathetic fallacy? Well, if you want to really annoy me, try getting the pathetic fallacy wrong again. The pathetic fallacy is the fallacy, the wrongness of thinking that things in nature have moods or emotions. So it might be the pathetic fallacy to think the weather was actually being cruel or being kind. It's not the pathetic fallacy if the weather happens to match your your mood that is not what the pathetic fallacy is you seem to be you seem to feel quite strongly about this i do feel strongly about it i do it's a 19th century thing that i just think about in my 19th century corner that no one else is allowed in you probably just wouldn't get it but i know and ruskin knew so why were you shitting on about this time and that time before because i've constructed for myself a persona called adam pheasant He's the host of a fictional show called The Between Times with Adam Pheasant. And in that persona, Adam Pheasant, I can say all the things that Adam Smith would be cancelled for saying. But Adam Pheasant can get away with it. Oh, that is so handy. Can I have a satirical persona as well? No, you just have to play the fairly uncontroversial, highly conventional co-host. Well, that doesn't seem very fair. I want to have a satirical persona. Sorry, it's not going to happen. Well, I think that is so unfair. I'm going to unmask you right now as Adam James Smith, senior lecturer in 18th century literature, while I, in my satirical persona and my persona persona, am Joe War, senior lecturer in 19th century literature. That's right. And this is my podcast, Adam Pheasant Talks About Satire, in which I... No. Sorry, this is our podcast. Smith and War Talk About Satire satire in which we discuss the form, function, future and history of satire and in fact try quite hard not to say anything which might indeed get us cancelled and today we're going to talk about some satire things from the last few months including you, Joe, your trip to London, (laughs) satirical Joe and persona persona Joe into London. We're also going to talk about this time with Alan Partridge, some new Borat specials that appeared on Amazon Prime and we're going to revisit our chat about left and right wing satire and 
Lots else besides. What, what do you mean, stuff that might get us cancelled? You can say anything you like. Everyone can. And if you want to say things that people might object to, you should probably have a word of yourself and stop wanting to say them. Well, I'll tell you someone who doesn't agree with that, and that is Steve Coogan. Well, tell me more. Well, Steve Coogan was on Jonathan Ross, the Jonathan Ross show recently, as he's prone to Jonathan do. Ross, the Jonathan Ross show. Well, the Jonathan Ross show with Jonathan Ross. And it was actually a fascinating lineup. I didn't watch this live because I don't watch Jonathan Ross, but I, I saw it on YouTube later. And Steve Coogan was being interviewed by Jonathan Ross. And do you know who else was being interviewed at the same time? Alan Partridge. Very nearly. Adam Pheasant. More close than that. More close to what? <laughs> the identity of the... Alan Partridge was closer to the identity of the other guest. Adam Pheasant is in the ballpark, but was a little bit further away than the identity of the actual guest. So someone who's like Alan Partridge, yes. uh, Richard Langley. That would have been closer. So it's somewhere on the spectrum between Alan Partridge and... Richard Maley. Quite close on the Richard Maley end lies the identity of this mystery guest. Judy Finnegan. And it wasn't Judy Finnegan. I'll give you a clue. Go on. Crash Bang Wallop. Who? Who? What? It was Jeremy Clarkson. It was Jeremy Clarkson. Oh, yeah. That's not what Jeremy Clarkson mostly says. No, but in, in Alan Partridge season two, when he has his Crash Bang Wallop, what a video. It's about car crashes, yeah. isn't it? That's a kind of a Jeremy Clarkson thing. Yeah. The, the biggest synergy between the two is, and on that bombshell. Yeah. I'll bring together the most annoying car show in the world. Like that's the yeah. So Jeremy Clarkson's there, who I think is eighty percent an Alan Partridge persona. Mm -hmm. I once saw a BuzzFeed, in fact, that was like, guess which of these phrases is Jeremy Clarkson, which one's Alan Partridge. I consider myself quite a big Alan Partridge fan. Got quite a lot of them wrong. So mm -hmm. he's there, and Jonathan Ross is in the middle, and they're talking about Alan Partridge and this time and Steve Coogan's other projects. And during the course of the interview, Steve, I think Jonathan Ross says to Steve Coogan, do you feel as you get older that you're getting more like Alan Partridge or that Alan Partridge is getting more like you? I mean, basically, uh, you know, Alan Partridge and me, if there's a Venn diagram of me and Alan Partridge, there's quite a big overlap between us. You know, so <laughs> what, bigger than when you started? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what areas overlap? Well, I mean, the things I say as Alan that I can possibly say as me or I get cancelled, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but I can sort of say them as him, so I, I use Alan as a Trojan horse yeah. to hide inside him all the things that I couldn't possibly say in reality. So, so some, sometimes he says things that are, you know, are, are obnoxious and, uh, you know, just not very nice. Yeah. And... Uh, and sometimes he says things that I, I secretly um, agree with. But... <laughs> well, I guess you would filter them out. So it's like you with no filters at all. Well, yeah. So, well, look, I think we all, you know, especially this day and age, you, you, we, we, you think stuff and then you normally edit it. Yeah. Uh, unless you're Jeremy. Well, I was going to say, not everybody can do that. Well, I mean, Jeremy sort of made a, a, a career of um, actually speaking his mind. But I, I, I've sort of uh, channeled it into the character. Yeah. Like. But... Um, he, he sort of is half... I half like him and half can't bear him. Yeah. Um, and... Oh, are we talking about Jeremy now? Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't know. I saw, no, I 75% like Jeremy. And, and, uh, and I 50% like Alan Partridge. Steve Coogan clearly, at least in that conversation, subscribes to the idea that there is such a thing as cancel culture and that he has to navigate it carefully. I suppose... I was actually reading... Have you ever heard of an essay called Exiting the Vampire Castle by Mark Fisher? No. This is an essay that was in 2013. Mark Fisher, the Marxist commentator, author of Socialist Capitalism. And he sort of is identifying what I think would now be referred to by some people as cancel culture. Um, and he's warning against it. But sort of the thrust of that essay, which again is from 2013, is actually about how 
left-wing Twitter or left left certain aspects of the left-wing culture of 2013 um, were more cruel to people who were broadly on their side than the opposition. And it's an interesting essay in lots of ways, but I thought it's quite a good example of it in that Steve Coogan mm. is more likely to possibly fall for that kind of critique and censor than Jeremy Clarkson because he is on the left. He does have, he's vocally socialist, isn't he? He took on the Rupert Murdoch empire. He always is in, he used to be in Labour adverts. I think he possibly wouldn't appear in them anymore. Um, whereas people's just like, oh, Jeremy Clarkson, that's what he's like. So it's a bit like what yeah. Andrew Doyle said about how you can only be cancelled by your own side, isn't it? Was it Andrew Doyle who said that or was it on the Blockton Reported podcast? I think they, I think they would both agree with that. Yeah. So I wonder what it is that Steve Coogan wants to say, what bits of Alan Partridge are the bits that he can't say normally. Well, I always I always feel like when Alan is critiquing the BBC as an institution, that, that that's not like persona that's coming from a real place, but I, that wouldn't get you cancelled, would it? No. I mean, there's little bits, there's little snippets, isn't there, when he says, there's one bit where he says in the final episode, there's a throwaway line that's something like, and we all know for every three vocal people who complain, there are hundreds of people who silently disagree, or something like that, isn't it? Um, silently agree. agree. Sorry, sorry, who silently agree. When I heard that, it made me think of, I can't remember if it's in, I think it's in Knowing Me, Knowing You, when somebody says, somebody compares the show to the Titanic about to crash into an iceberg. Mm -hmm. And he says, let me tell you something, people forget with the Titanic, there was hundreds and hundreds of miles of perfectly uneventful sailing, and no one ever talks about those. So when he said that about there are lots of people who don't complain, I didn't read it in that way. But I guess knowing that um, maybe he is saying things that he might get cancelled for as Steve Coogan, then perhaps perhaps that is the case. I mean, once I saw that, it was interesting from the perspective of sort of the way a paratext can invite you to reread the main text. Having seen that interview, I then watched the second half of this time with Alan Partridge differently because I was sort of scrutinising it to try and find out what mm -hmm. the things were. I mean, there's the whole, there's sort of a critique of cancel culture or the way that people behave in and around the concept of it in the final episode, isn't there? Where Alan preemptively thinks that he's been cancelled and he's got his apology ready to go and he does his apology and then it turns out so yeah psychic simon which they don't call him psychic simon anymore do they just Simon. Yeah. alan believes that simon has inferred that someone shared these pictures of him that were unfortunate from many years ago where he was wearing a lot of fake tan and to try and get ahead of the curve because clearly he's got a game plan for should cancellation ever happen he releases the pictures on, on the digi wall shows everyone these pictures of him accidentally mispronounces Black Lives Matter and um, and essentially self-cancels in an attempt to preemptively avoid cancellation. I was just thinking as I was talking then, like there's a theme through all of this stuff that he's done with the Givens Brothers. It's in Nomad and it's in season one that basically U-Tree creates the opportunity for Alan to get back to the BBC. It's sort yeah. of like the... I don't, I don't want to use the word cancellation, but sort of the the, the, the fact that 70s TV presenters have now become toxic, many with you know, indisputable reasons, has allowed the opportunity for Alan to finally bounce back. And um, now that he has, he's got to be careful to walk the tightrope so that he himself doesn't fall victim to the same processes that saw off a lot of his competitors. Yeah, and and that's there in the very first, no, the, sec the second episode when the regular host has died and within the course of an episode it turns out that he was quite a bad, um, a bad sort. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because whenever Alan Partridge is on the BBC, the, the setup that he's in 
is on the BBC, right? So Knowing Me, Knowing You was a BBC show. This is a BBC show. The radio was on BBC Radio 4. And then he spent these years in the interim on... Um, oh, what's the, the made-up channel that his um, Crash Bang Wallop is on? It's like Combat TV or something. It's like Quest, isn't it? But it's not that. Um, and on North Norfolk Digital and so on. But it's I guess like underneath that, there's a comment that like somebody somebody whose career went awry after they shot a man live on TV in the 90s might now be welcome back hosting a mainstream primetime TV show now. Yeah. And then it ends on an interesting note, doesn't it? Because the final... Because we, we're sort of left to wonder for the whole season how he got away with what happened in this end of season one, aren't we? So the, mm. the final episode of season one. But the end of season one, he, he is he caught, he's caught talking into... He, he slags off Jenny, doesn't he? And then it gets mm. the boss. And then he's back for season two. And then this episode finishes with him having a bit of a rant about how stupid regular viewers are, aren't they? And how nobody cares about their opinion. And he ends up with that line, I'm hopping mad, there's nothing in the middle. You're either an obscure literary festival on Radio 4 or what's better, cats or dogs. But it chimes with the public. And the episode sort of finishes with him Having, do, having basically self-cancelled himself and then insulted the audience and it seems to have doubled his popularity in minutes. So Alan maybe can't be cancelled now. I think what I'm going to need to do is go back and watch all both two seasons and write a list of every single thing that Alan Partridge says that Steve Coogan might actually mean. There's one moment that's definitely that, but I don't think it comes from Alan. It's from Simon, which is when they're talking about uh, maybe maybe a good thing to do for an episode would be to get people from <laughs> people from Israel and people from Palestine, get them on the show, let's have a power power, let's have it out, and let's sort it out at this time next week. And then Simon says, no, because that's not representative, is it? That's not a diversity of opinion. That's just getting two people with extreme views and, and having an argument. And then everyone applauds Simon. Can I just say, it's a powwow, not a pow pow, and that's unfortunate in the context of the Israelis and the Palestinians. Did I say pow pow? Yeah. Oh, I know. I know that it's a powwow. I must have just spoken. <laughs> I think it just came out funny. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve Coogan seems to acknowledge the fact that there is such a thing as cancel culture. Mm. There is. I don't know if you've heard Stuart Lee doing the podcast rounds recently, but he quite quite quickly, quite often, refers to cancel culture as being this myth of the right. He often evokes the alt right and says, so, "Yeah." Story. And the, yeah, he's very dismissive about the idea, isn't he? Yeah, and on the Ed Buxton podcast, I mentioned Stuart Lee because he's a satirist. On the Edmonton mm. podcast, he, he mentions, he makes a joke about how one of his shows in the 90s, I think it was This Morning with Richard, not Judy, or possibly Fist of Fun, and he says when it didn't it didn't get renewed, it got cancelled. And then he's like, I don't mean cancelled because we said something offensive. I mean cancelled in the traditional sense that it didn't get renewed from the further season. And it just, reflecting on that, the difference between what Coogan and Lee are saying, is it occurs to me that there are three different categories of what is often termed cancellation and they get mixed up quite a lot don't they um so there's cancellation for doing something egregious isn't it cancellation for doing something you've done something which is yeah. objectively possibly illegal massively harmful right so an example of that would be prince andrew because he's lost everything now hasn't he? he's lost all his money he's lost his title mm. he's oh wait fuck all's happened to him <laughs> not prince andrew i mean not Prince Andrew, Jimmy Savile, but he Jimmy cancelled out of being alive anyway, isn't he? <laughs> he was cancelled out of existence. Um, but no, so cancellation for if you've 
if something comes out that you've done or that you do something that is so morally apprehensible, no one will work with you again. Yeah. So, so who's an example? Who is an example? I mean, it's a really dark one, but the singer from The Lost Prophets basically yes. turned out that he was doing a really, I mean, that's one, isn't it? That's a really yeah. ambiguous one. He was doing things. Who, else, who are the other YouTube people? YouTube people? Hmm. Uh, Rolf Harris. Rolf Harris. Rolf Harris is cancelled. We got we got one. Rolf Harris was liked. Now he isn't. He did did a bad thing. He was convicted of doing a bad bad thing. Yeah. And I think he's done. Then there's people yeah. who get cancelled for I think more tangential or subjective reasons. Mm. So they've done something or there's been an accusation that's made about them or they're affiliated with something that's problematic and that leads to their being cancelled yeah and i think as well you can you know cancelling is relative isn't it um you can be like locally cancelled by everyone who matters to you yeah and then that's you know in your little circle that's no different from you know that that's going to have the same impact on you as if you're famous and then you're not famous anymore i mean that's a good question it's not something that we necessarily want to get into in massive detail because it's not what the podcast about but when people talk about being cancelled it can mean different that in itself there can be different degrees mm. of it, can't they? And people now... It can be ostracised, can't it, from all mm. the people who matter most to you or the, yeah. the contexts that are important to you. This isn't really about satire anymore, is no, it? No, but then the, the third one, I think, is cancellation through mischaracterization. So where someone has done something and a group of people interpret it through a particular ideological lens or something, and then quite quickly... This does come back to what we're going to talk about. I think this feeds into the Borat conversation a little bit about misinformation. Mm. So someone can interpret something that someone has done as being problematic or as being distasteful. And then mm. in the current climate, that can be whipped up into something much bigger. But because that third category, I think, does happen, that is what people who say cancel culture is a myth latch onto. Isn't it? It's that sort of thing, yeah. manufactured outrage. Or the suggestion that outrage is manufactured when it's legitimate. That's the other thing. Mm. So, and, and then it gets really murky. But it's interesting that we've got two satirists there who have two different views on this phenomena. And yet, presumably, both of them are having to navigate this. I mean, Coogan acknowledged it quite self-consciously there, but Stuart Lee, is he not concerned that he might do an act or an act that he's done in the past might be recontextualised? He's very interested in things being recontextualised, isn't he? Well... He he got some flack for seeming to make fun of Tom Tugendhat's name in a column a year or so ago, yeah. um, and a bunch of people said like that that's actually really offensive. Do you not understand the context of that name? Can't believe Stuart. And that went on for I think all of one Sunday afternoon. But then, it, and the thing is, the attempts at that would be cancellation were coming from the right and it didn't take off. Mm. Um, I don't think that anybody who'd previously really liked Stuart Lee bought into the idea that, you know, he was now a deeply problematic figure um, because he, I suppose, because the name mocking he was doing was against a, a, a Tory MP. And I don't, I don't think it was that serious anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I guess, I guess like a lot of us, you know, he, Stuart Lee probably works on the reasonable assumption that he has no intention of saying anything wildly offensive. Yeah. But um, I think Steve Coogan's perspective is perhaps that it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. I will tell you another thing mm -hmm. uh, that has been on the telly and um, that we've talked about before. 
mm-hmm. like most things, and that is Borat. So mm-hmm. have you seen all the little extra clips coming out of the, the Borat subsequent movie film that are on um, Amazon Prime right now? I've seen most of them. So there's, there's three, and I've seen two of them. So one of them is Borat's American Lockdown, and then there's Borat Debunked, and then there's the one I haven't watched, which is Borat VHS cassette tape of material deemed subadequate by Kazakhstan Ministry of Censorship and Circumcision, which is, I think, cutscenes and outtakes. Do you want to tell the lovely listeners what, Amer- what Borat's American Lockdown is? Would you take a complete stranger into your home in the middle of a global pandemic? It seems like a risky decision, but you're about to meet two men who did just that. The man they took in? Borat Segdiev, a disgraced journalist from Kazakhstan who was looking for his daughter and a chance at redemption. As stay-at-home orders were issued around the country, these men were confined together completely cut off from the outside world. Our cameras were there to capture their unforgettable experience, which you're about to see tonight. This is American Lockdown. Yeah, because I can't remember which thing came in what. Yeah, you, you tell them what it is. Yeah. In the, in the Borat subsequent movie film, we haven't seen it. We, as we discussed back in November, there's a long, there's about a 10 minute sequence where Borat is in lockdown with two conspiracy theorists um, in America, two Trump supporting conspiracy theorists. In the film, we never find out how Sacha Baron Cohen pulled that off or what those people thought they were doing, but it transpires that they were, I, I think they were led to believe that they were in a, reality TV program where they had to stay. The bunker was theirs, but that Borat was going to stay with them. So they put cameras everywhere. Obviously that generated, I think it says at one point that Sasha Baron Cohen lived with them for three days in fully in character, never broke character for three days. They recorded all this material, 10 minutes makes it into the film. And then they've edited together this 50 minute special called Borat's American Lockdown, which is edited like an episode of, um, I don't know, I'm sorry to get me out of here or something, isn't it? Um, yeah. So can you remember what we said about Jim and Jerry when we talked about them on the original on the podcast where we first talked about the Borat film? Yeah, I think we said that there was an inter- they were interesting characters because although they bought into these frightening conspiracy theories theories and sang sing a terrifying song at one point um <laughs> in the original film, that they were both quite like surprisingly amicable and friendly and tolerant of Borat. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about it, didn't we? And how maybe, um, in a kind of quiet, oblique way, those two characters might might have a role in the film, which is something like suggesting that you know the, things aren't so binary as we sometimes like to think. That somebody who thinks one thing isn't deplorable in every sim- single aspect of their being, because like lots of what they say and do is. But also, you can't deny they're they're quite hospitable and generous, and we see that even more, don't we, in, in um, this forty-five minute special where they're they're helping him. We see behind the scenes as they help Borat to find his missing daughter, and we also see quite a protracted um, section where they are painstakingly and really patiently explaining to Borat that women. You, you can love your daughter like more than your horse, that daughters are important and that women think the same as men and women aren't a kind of the lowest form of being on, on the earth. And they 
like they won't let that go, will they? When he keeps saying, "Well, it's, it's a daughter," so in, and like ordering in a hierarchy everybody who might be in your life, and the daughter's at the bottom, um, and they like they they never just think, "Oh well, you know that's just what he thinks," mm. or and they certainly never show any sympathy for that point of view. And we see that at some length, and we also see them being really, really invested in helping him to find her, which yeah. they do. I mean, there's that bit, isn't it, when when Borat is saying that his daughter, I don't know, she shouldn't be doing stuff, and because she's a woman, she can't. And Jim and Jerry are like, no, no, a woman can do anything a man can do. Anyone can do anything they want to do, and they're really advocating this position. But then that's when Borat produces the book, isn't it? That explains that women that baby women grow babies inside their brains, and then they yeah. work their way through the body and stuff. And he yeah. produces the book, and they go through the book together. And what did Jim and Jerry make of that? Well, they're just like, no, no, this this is wrong. But then there's a really beautiful moment, isn't there? Which, which, which is just so almost too perfectly fortuitous when they say, look, you know how you or some people think that some of this stuff that we believe is like a conspiracy theory and it's wrong and it's not scientific. Well, that's what we think about this book. Holy shit. What you have shown us and explained to us we're sitting here like, what? Yeah. This you, this is we're a... looking at this and thinking, what? Yeah. We, we look at you this look at this and think, what? Yeah. We look at this, this and think, and it's, think a what? it's a lie. That's a, it's a conspiracy theory. So the same thing you're thinking about what we're telling you is what we think about this, or I do. And like, it, that, that's incredible, isn't it? But, but it, they just fail to draw the dot in that for the last kind of quarter of the circle to understand that yes and also a lot of the stuff you believe is batshit i mean i think it can't it's difficult to um overstate quite how patient and tolerant they are in that film because there's bits for example where jim and jerry are sat having a conversation in the living room and then borat comes in in some kind of mankini with a dildo in the front of it like it so he looks like he's got an enormous like a four or five foot erect penis and then he he starts doing star jumps next to them and then he walks in front of them and he's basically trying to brush the penis in their faces and they just completely they're just like keep talking and and they're clearly frustrated but they don't say anything and then they say good night yeah. to him and they're friendly to him can you imagine if that happened in like what's that reality program that you watch about the wives real housewives of cheshire yeah, if someone did that in Real Housewives of Cheshire, it'd kick off, wouldn't it? Someone comes in to Tanya Bardsley's house doing star jumps and waving a dildo in her face. Is that what we're imagining here? Would she be as patient and tolerant as Jim and Jerry? No, no, she wouldn't. And um, well, probably all the rest of the housewives would be there and they'd all sort of start probably throwing things around. And then like Seema would say like, do you know what? I think what you need to do is just have it out to her, have it out with her one-on-one, -on -one. just get it all out in the open, just get it all out there, just go and have a word with her. So they try and do that. Then they'd start throwing at each other. And then in the next episode, probably in like the second section after the adverts, there'd be some footage of Jim and Jerry and one of their other friends. And the other friend would be like, what did you think about Borat doing that the other night? You seemed quite upset. And 
And then they'd be like, I am upset actually, because you know, she texts me and she's put it all on social media and I'm just like, I'm just so upset with her. I don't even want to talk to her right now. Well, I think what you need to do is sit down, have it out with her one-to-one, just get it all out in the open. And then one of them would stage a disastrous dinner party that would be like the bit at the end that's been trailed all the way through. Someone would throw something, someone would cry, and then that would be the end. So in a way, Jim and Jerry, despite their frightening subscription to some of these terrible they're, they're quite a lot more sensible and civilised than the Real Housewives of Cheshire. Everyone's more sensible and civilised than the Real Housewives of Cheshire. That's why I watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I don't mean to just pick on Tanya Barsley. Actually, she's one of my favourites, but, um, but they're all quite irascible. Oh, I, need, I need a project that connects satire and the Real Housewives of Cheshire. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's the, the, the sort of the format that Sasha Bride Cohen is doing is is adapted from those shows and it brings them into sharp relief like it's a it's an extra dimension of the satire that you'd have to be talking to someone who watched the real of che- real housewives of cheshire to realize is that it foregrounds how ludicrous these supposedly civilized programs are although it doesn't market itself as civilized does it no. real housewives of cheshire no well i do a bit because <laughs> what do you want to hear about this yeah yeah it's uh, it's our podcast they do a little bit because that's where it that's where the tension lies in that they all behave like 13 year olds hopped up on 2020 by the end of the um episode but they always they start it where each housewife will kind of come on wearing a ball dress and kind of shimmy on in front of the camera and do a few poses and that then they'll be like money can't buy class but luckily I've got plenty of both. And that most of their things will be about like, I'm really classy, I'm really wealthy, I'm a real lady, but but then there'll be something about, but when the chips are down, I know how to fight. So it's it's about the tension between the fact they've got a lot of money, but they will behave like absolute animals um, after a few drinks. It's a very good programme. <laughs> it sounds good. I've never watched it. I used to watch Geordie Shaw for a little while. Um... Never watched that. But uh, that they, 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 there was no classy. The whole point was that they weren't classy. <laughs> That's one of the shows. The other one is Debunking Borat. So these are seven minute episodes where Sasha Baron Cohen has arranged for Jim and Jerry to sit down at a computer. And then each episode, there's seven of them in total, look at a different conspiracy theory that they mentioned during the American lockdown episode. And then an expert will come onto the computer and explain to them why they're stupid to think that. It was flawed from the start, wasn't it? Because to quote the great Michael Gove, people have had enough of experts. You know, if if Jim and Jerry believed in listening to experts, they wouldn't think all of the things that they think. So the format of it, if people haven't watched it yet, is that it's always got, it's one of, it does that classic streaming thing at the start where you have the same introduction every time. So it's Sasha Barry Cohen saying, I lived in a house with three of these people for three days. They mentioned all these dangerous things. So we're now going to debunk all these conspiracy theories to show them the error of their ways. And then the actual episode, before you get to the Jim and Jerry bit, this sort of like really crisply spoken, calm, sounds like something from a terrifying dystopian science fiction film voice comes on. And then with loads of snazzy infographics explains the truth. Mm. That's not the conspiracy. And it's like, so it's like, this is what you should think. This is right. This is why it's harmful. Um, and then after you've got that, then you get Jim and Jerry come on. Jim and Jerry are affable, friendly as ever. These experts come on and they they tune in. And then mm. Jerry in particular is always like, 
hello there, it's a pleasure to meet you, really nice to meet you. And they're like, hi, Jim and Jerry, we liked you in the film. And he's like, really great to meet you. And like, it seems genuine and sincere, doesn't it? And then it, depending on what the conspiracy is, either Jim and Jerry are persuaded, but I think on a surprising number of occasions, they're not, which is quite interesting, isn't it? So I was thinking the ones, the one, one where they, the ones where they are immediately persuaded is ones where people are saying this conspiracy theory happened in this way, and it's led to the marginalization of this group. And Jim yeah. and Jerry are like, well, that's terrible. That's awful. Um, I mean, there's one bit where someone says, don't you think that Donald Trump should apologize to the, to, to the Asian population for saying this was the Chinese virus when we've explained, when we've now explained why it's not. And what Jim, I think Jim says, uh, absolutely. And then the guy says, do you think that, that, that Donald Trump should apologize because no one should be marginalized in that way? And he's like, nobody should. Everybody should be entitled to fair treatment in this world. And that goes for the Chinese or any, any other group. So they're like really tolerant. Yeah. But then the conspiracies that they won't believe are fake is voter fraud. And yeah. um, they're not too keen on Hillary Clinton even after that episode no yeah there's uh, yeah i don't know how you'd categorize the things that they are open to persuasion on and the things that they're not like do, do you think there's any consistency between the things they change their mind about and the things that are utterly entrenched oh God, i should really know what he was what, what he was doing but one of the speakers he's he's the d director of something that's called like the online center for mitigating against internet hate or something like that yeah. And when, I, when he comes on to explain anti-Jewish conspiracies and when he comes on to explain about the, the myth of the Chinese virus and stuff like that, when he's talking about how people have been manipulated into hating other people, Jim and Jerry get angry about it. When they feel like they've been manipulated to hate someone, they get really angry about it and they, and they quickly repent. But when it's, when it's something, well, the, the, the voter fraud one, they were just like, we don't vote because it's too easy to tamper with. We just don't. We've already committed to that. Um, it might be better if they don't. <laughs> the QAnon one was interesting because they quickly agreed that it was ridiculous to suggest that members of the American elite government, such as Hillary Clinton, drink the adrenaline of children. Um, they would not... They were still, they were still, ne they were still negative about those individuals. I mean, mm. I thought I found the Hillary Clinton one the most uncomfortable. Yeah. Because I thought her video was so she didn't actually speak to them live. She sent a video ahead, and I didn't think it was very good. Yeah, I mean, it would have been difficult for her to speak to them live, probably, wouldn't they? But yeah, but she basically the whole video that she so everyone else had well, the majority of the people had tried to explain how these conspiracies happened, and but then her one was basically. The fact that this conspiracy has happened is hurtful to me and my family, and I just, yeah. want you, I just want to implore you to be kind to me and other people. I think, I think the issue with Hillary Clinton and with Obama is they just have a really visceral loathing of those specific individuals, and nothing that comes out of their mouths is going to yeah. change that. And then when that, when she finishes talking, the last whole series is Jerry going, "I still don't like her," so he gets the last word. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it does kind of go back to the idea of cancel culture that, you know, arguably, once you have been what we might for convenience sake term cancelled, nothing that comes out of your mouth or your pen or your laptop is ever going to be deemed worthwhile again. And it's because of the source, isn't it? It's because it comes from you. So there are some people who on Twitter could tweet like, 
a picture of a meadow or something and vast swathes of Twitter would think that was like a bad and problematic meadow, right? Yeah. Or find a reason why they shouldn't have been at that meadow in the first place. Yeah. And and it's the same with nothing, you know, the idea that Hillary Clinton is a sentient being with fa- a family and emotions and people who care for her and who she cares about and that the same is true of Obama, that weighs nothing with these people. And it's almost like that there is a kind of similarity there, isn't there, in that for an awful lot of people at the moment, the the kind of the messenger matters more than the message. And they, in their own heads, like Obama and Clinton are, are pre-cancelled and permanently cancelled and therefore of no value. And that's, it's frightening in, in any direction, isn't it? Whatever you... Like, I would really like them to reevaluate their stance on Obama and Clinton um, because, I, because I think they're wrong and those other people are right. But whoever's doing it, and for whatever reason, it's quite terrifying, isn't it, to think, to imagine being that entrenched in your hatred of someone that you wouldn't recognise any humanity or reason in anything they said. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about it is going back to what you were saying at the start, like how the format of it is experts coming on to explain to these two rednecks. Like that's how it feels, and that's how they must have felt. You know, what a privilege it is for them to be told what to think by these experts, which immediately makes you feel makes me feel sympathy for Jim and Jerry. And there's one bit which again, it's almost I can't believe that it happened, where they have an Emirates professor from the University of Cambridge sat in in like a tweed jacket. He's like he's doing the full old school professor things, sat in his li- his own library with mahogany bookcases full of books that he's written. And he ex- and he says to the camera, he's like, well, the reason that all of these conspiracies come to exist is because the gatekeepers of quality opinion, so the gatekeepers of public opinion have, have corroded. So, you know, when there was a time where educated people like newspaper editors and journalists and and ed, uh, TV editors, they would immediately filter out any opinions that, you know, were too stupid to uh, proliferate. And we didn't have this culture. And it's like, can you hear yourself? Like, you, you couldn't be making the case for the opposition any more clearly than you are. I mean, I don't, I agree with it. Like, I think that they're, they're, you know, we do need checks and measures. But for an Emirates professor from Cambridge, we sat in his library explaining to Jim and Jerry that it's dangerous for people to have opinions about things that aren't sanctioned by gatekeepers is surely grist to their mill. I mean, that is so easy to tweak to be about 80% less obnoxious, isn't it? Because what you really want to say is time was when it was up to BBC bosses or um, newspaper editors or whatever not so much that wrong opinions would never be heard as that like facts which are verifiably untrue would not be presented as if they were true that's all you need to say isn't it like now anybody can say anything and there's no obvious or easy way to determine that that is absolutely pulled out of their ass and it and it can be everywhere really quickly and he could have he could have just said that yeah. And just saying, like, people think things that are not true. Like, things, fake news. Yeah. Don't say, like, it was better when you could be protected from having an opinion. 
veteran those gatekeepers oh, cool. of public opinion. Yeah. Um, which begs yeah. the question: What is Sasha Baron Cohen trying to do with these little episodes? Like, I couldn't work that out. Just an extra for fans. Because yeah, because I was like, if the point is, look, you might be like Jim and Jerry, in which case it's unlikely that you're watching Borat because they didn't know who he was. Like, this is not yeah. for them. But if you're watching and you're like Jim and Jerry, this is why you're mistaken and they watch them go on this journey, which they then don't go on because by the end of it, about half of them, they still don't believe that it was a cons- that it's a, that it's not a conspiracy. So it's not that. Then is it like, let's laugh at Jim and Jerry because they're stupid and they think these things, but then they're presented too sympathetically for, I think, it to be that. So. Well, I mean- for our purposes, it would be quite nice to think that the following was true, and it sort of almost could be, where, you know, he's kind of um, nuancing and elaborating on what was just one smallish but quite significant part of the film, and seeing, like, well, how far can you go? Can you, um, you know, th- these guys are presented as fairly comedic and... Um, and quite interesting, but they're only one part of the wider film. And then to say, like, well, let's pause on this phenomenon. Let's see, like, what what is it that can change people's minds? Is it getting experts on screen and telling them the facts? Or is it, can you, could you potentially, like, satirise them out of it? As with Borat's book about how women grow babies in their brains. Just one other consequence of it is that I I felt, maybe this is another function of the, sh- of the show, is that I felt like I learned quite a lot about these conspiracy theories. So, for example, I didn't heard the one about the bricks. I thought that was hilarious. Well, just yeah. hilarious. So this is this was the conspiracy theory that when Black Lives Matter happened, pal- large pallets of bricks started to appear where the protests were scheduled to happen. And um, first of all, I think the people who were against Black Lives Matter were suggesting that Black Lives Matter supporters were buying the bricks. So it's a Black Lives Matter supporters to throw the bricks at other people and property. Then it became the alt-right are buying the bricks, so that people would throw bricks at the Black Lives Matter supporters. And then somehow it got all mixed up and it became Bill Gates is buying the bricks because he supports Black Lives Matter through, he owns the brick, one of the brick companies or something. But then they go onto Google Street Map and show that the bricks have been there pretty much months or years before. So it could be, um, it could actually just be that aliens put them there. Yeah. But then someone, someone says, one of the experts says, um, in a big city, you do just have piles of bricks laying around. You don't notice them. And I was like, fuck off. Like, I've never seen a pile of bricks laying around. But then I saw one today. Yeah. Jump Street on the corner, there's just a pile it's, of bricks. It's like anything, isn't it? When you're out and about, you notice the things that are, that are relevant to you at any given point. So, you know, you sometimes you notice, like how many babies there suddenly seem to be or that everybody's wearing a yellow coat when mm-hmm. it came out suddenly people were noticing people in yellow duffel coats everywhere mm-hmm. like i've got i've got a pile of bricks outside my house are you building but they're just cemented together in a wall nice did you have a moment in your life where you suddenly realized how many video cameras there were everywhere uh what like cctv cameras yeah yeah I don't think there was a particular moment, no. Well, maybe when I killed that man. Oh, that, that might have been it, yeah. No, I did. I, I can't remember when it was, but there was one time when I just was, I think I was standing waiting for a bus or something, I just noticed a video camera, a CCTV camera post. And then for like the next few weeks, I just, well, they're everywhere, aren't they? But you don't yeah. alert to them all the time. That And also there was one time when I was shopping with a friend and she let me push 
her push chair for a while. Well, she asked me to while she did the shopping. And as soon as I was in Marks and Spencer's, and as soon as I was pushing the push chair, I suddenly became aware of how many other push chairs there were in the supermarket. And actually, there's this whole complicated sub network of interactions about maneuvering these push chairs around each other. And I yeah. suppose that was a moment where I experienced, where I became aware of my male privilege, having never, uh, I never, never even noticed that that world of pushchair navigation was happening before my very eyes. Well, this is all good stuff. Mm. Keeps it, keeps it, just gives it that human element, doesn't it? These little, little anecdotal insights. Yeah, that human element, doesn't it? Uh, shall we move on? Yes. So I've, I've got a satirical thing um, to talk about. So the other weekend the bank holiday weekend um for the first time in over a year i went down to london to see my um firstborn relative super spreader yeah. i'm not a super spreader anyway so i went to london for the first time in in 14 months and we went to the foundling hospital museum in bloomsbury and um there's well there's two satirical elements to that one of them is fairly brief not very interesting and we're not going to talk about it too long because I don't want you starting on about corners or anything and one is that um Hogarth was like a governor of the founding hospital and he did like portraits of um the guy who founded it but funnily enough he did like quite a nice normal sensible portrait he didn't like paint Coram um you know with it with a baby on his breast and a gin bottle and his other arm and a rat on his head or anything like that it wasn't like that kind of Hogarth painting it was just a portrait but the other thing I saw there was um juvenile like literally juvenile satire because um and I'm gonna send you some images to have a look at in a moment so they had this like temporary exhibition and it's called the Covid Letters and they just kind of gave to a whole bunch of children uh, the the letter that Boris Johnson sent out to every household about the uh, the lockdown and the the explanation in that room is as follows the covid letters eloquently and rudely articulate the historical moment of lockdown they are political art at its best there is no politeness or restraint instead the work is full of righteous anger where bodily fluids mix with disrespect for those in authority it follows in the great tradition of the satirical art of William Hogarth that skewered the pomposity of politicians and the writing of Roald Dahl that imagined a world populated by all sorts of grotesque adults. Um, and then some more. So yeah, basically, a load of kids between the age of about sort of two and 14 had this letter and were invited to like scribble all over it. And then those are exhibited all over the hospital. So would you um, would you like to see one? Yes, and please. then you talk about it and um, sort of evaluate it as satire. Say what you see. <laughs> okay, so um, drawn over the body of the letter is a heart. Um, the heart is, I would hesitate to call it a rainbow heart because it's, not, it's not, colors, Roy, it? not Roy G. Biv. Yeah, it's just red, red, green, brown, purple, blue. Um, there's some black hearts in a green box. And then it says, I hat Boris. And I heart the NHS. So whilst I get you another one ready, have, just have a little think, reflect. <laughs> Is that satire? And if so, how does it work? 
Um, I'm not sure if it's satire. I, mean, I suppose it is satire. I don't think the work itself, I don't think the artist necessarily is doing satire. They're expressing a sincere opinion that they hat Boris Johnson and they love the NHS. Puts those two mm. in interesting juxtaposition, doesn't it? That, you know, Boris yeah. Johnson is not good for the NHS, I suppose is the inference. But I think that presenting the work for public scrutiny makes it satirical, doesn't it? Because it's, it's sort of the out of the mouths of babes uh, expression, isn't it? So there's a child yeah. here um, who has hit the nail on the head, which is that Boris isn't good for the NHS and that you that, that he doesn't have the NHS's best interests at heart and that they will possibly follow the guidelines, but not for Boris, but to protect the NHS. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, I'm going to send you another one now. <laughs> okay this is this is this is more like it okay so you can't read the letter at all anymore um over the second half the bottom half of the letter there is a, a picture of a uh, poo um as in a, a fecal stool um so there's a poo and it looks like the poo emoji and it's smiling it's got a bow tie on and it's got eyes and the it's saying it's saying there's a speech ball coming out of the poo and the poo is saying, I know everything. And then a helpful explanatory note next to it in parenthesis is written, Boris is the poo. So Boris Johnson is, is the is the poo. And then in massive multicolored writing, it says, get down the toilet, Boris. Yeah, I like it. It's it? I mean, I, it's, it's rather touching how few of these children trusted their own work to to think that people would get what they were doing so yeah i mean it's a bit like we were talking to uh, wendy mcglashan about like how you need the vis the the written prompts isn't it um so they've had to explain that boris is the poo um and i, I don't know if they all sat around together doing this but i think if so the brown pen was in hot demand because a lot of them have drawn poos and i think the older children tended to um, quite sensibly rely on the fact that there is a recognisable poo emoji. So if you draw the poo emoji, people will assume it's a poo. But some of them didn't necessarily, either they didn't know about the poo emoji or the brown pen was in demand. Because I did see one where they'd just sort of drawn an oval and then next to it, it said like arrow poo, in case you, you kind of wouldn't get it um, I mean, without that. Getting right back to the... Strong, strong input of poo in this. But is yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it's getting right back to the classical golden age of 18th century satire, which was, if nothing else, scatological, wasn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. I so see this one doesn't have the NHS angle. Um, so there is, it's not, it's not drawing a, an ambivalent comparison between the two. It's just sort of saying Boris Johnson's poo and he's yes. down the toilet. This, this one that's incoming has got all of that and more. Um, and some very cute spelling. Oh boy. So this is a different class again. This is really detailed. I wonder if this child is either a little bit older than the other ones or mentally far superior. Six. six. It says underneath he's six. I mean, if they're all six, then this one is a lot sharper <laughs> than the other. <laughs> so this one, to describe it to the listeners at home, we've got, oh, Boris, listen to your own advice or listen to your own advice. And that's coloured in rainbow stripes. Oh, Boris, it says again. And then all over the letter are these really detailed pictures of the COVID virus, little covoids, aren't they? Um, and they've got the crossed eyes, like a, like, a dead like a dead character, a dead stick man. They're bouncing mm. around everywhere. One of them has got a crown on and he's called King COVID. And then there's a bin in the middle of it and a turd. 
and it says bin Boris. So I think Boris has been personified as again, fecal matter that needs to be put in the bin. And then if you didn't get that, it does say put Boris in the bin. And then it also says go NHS, which is in very clear blue writing and, and colored in emitting a yellow light. And then also on the page is uh, lots of coins and it says tax, tax, tax. Yes. So yeah. I, I'm beginning to suspect that this child is either a genius, a prodigy, or had some help. They've had help, haven't they? <laughs> They've had help. Yeah. Um, they, they had help, but they didn't have help with the spelling because it says Lizon to your own. But if, if you were the parent, if, if you were the kind of ambitious parent of a precocious six-year-old, mm. might you not advise said six-year-old to leave in the cute misspellings, yes. like listen? your own advice cover, cover your own tracks as well so, yeah and yeah. you'd probably maybe give them a printout of what the covid virus looks like so they could copy that maybe try mm. it in rough a few times first and mm. um, yeah yeah i think it's, it's sort of artfully naive this one isn't it but um but still is it doing satirical work do you think it, it, well it's as satirical as uh anything by matt ford or spitting image isn't it it's sort of it's saying exactly what the issue is is it so, well? It's got a clear target, hasn't it? Boris and his management yeah. of the COVID situation. It's, and the yeah. taxpayers' money. Yeah, it's more. It's so interesting because these are from really early on in March, so there's quite a lot of focus on protect the NHS. We love the NHS, which is not so much of a meme. I mean, not that people have started hating the NHS, but you can you can really see where this comes from. Yeah. Okay, I've got one one last one for you. That's perhaps a little bit different. I mean, if the, if these kids weren't doing this together oh my god so all right so this one follows on nicely from what i was just about to say so it says boris johnson in multicolored letters along the top you bloody carrot and then there's a very like far more detail than anything we've seen so far portrait of boris johnson's face and it looks got like the eyes, doesn't she? got the eyes got the hair yeah very well this is so cecily is her name she's 10 Cecily's 10. So I think, yeah, you can tell that this student, this, this individual is a little bit older. But a beautiful portrait of Boris Johnson's face. And then in the place of a human body is just a large orange carrot with two twiggy arms sticking out the sides. And there's no more commentary than that. It's just Boris Johnson, you bloody carrot. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so it's just sort of resigned, like, that's what you are, Boris. You're a bloody carrot. Says yeah, it's interesting it? that Cecily's gone for such a simple, clear singular image there whereas mm. i think for a lot of them i mean cecily's got she's got some confidence there hasn't she whereas a lot of them have drawn a poo and then thought they need to clarify that it is a poo and it represents boris johnson and that they, they don't like boris johnson i don't think she's done this on purpose but it's sort of tapping into the same mentality as the super expensive government marketing where it's the th all the slogans are three words isn't it Protect yeah yes uh, build 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 what's the other one We'll shop out education, to education education yeah and she's got you bloody carrot so just a nice little three what i was going to say before because when i first saw this picture i thought it was a poo again but it's not it's a carrot mm. but i was going to say if these two these children weren't in the same room which we know they wouldn't have been actually because of the covid19 pandemic it's quite extraordinary that so many of them have independently decided to represent boris johnson as a, as a poo something about children or if it says something about boris johnson well, I think children, for for kids, poo has always been a kind of 
go-to insult, hasn't it? Before, when you're when you're old enough to understand what is rude and what isn't, but not old enough to have kind of learned all the joys of all the other sort of insults there are out, out there. Yeah, you go to poo, don't you? You do. You do. It, go to poo. The go poo joke for kids. Um, yeah. Well, that was. I really enjoyed that, Joe. What do you think? Is it satirical? No, mostly not. I think. I think but... that it's satirical on behalf of the founding hospital. I think the the founding hospital deciding to put this on, it has a satirical resonance. But I'm not sure whether the individual artworks are satirical. It might be different if they'd been given a blank sheet of paper and told like do do a thing. Mm. But because they had to work with the letter, mm. the overriding impression is of a defaced letter rather than of something. And and if you give someone something, you say like you know wreck that poo it up do draw all over it it's not going to have like a cohesive focus it's like they're just kind of doodled um albeit often like funny and clever and and angry messages yeah it, it comes from a different place where you don't have like i don't think many of them started out knowing what they wanted the letter to look like by the end or what yeah. they wanted people to to think and interestingly as well most of them have sort of directly addressed it to Boris Johnson. I suppose having the letter does give it a satirical, so it is a defaced letter, but also if the letter signifies political authority and their response is anarchy, I suppose that there's satirical potential in mm. the defacement itself. But yeah. whether it's satirical or not, absolutely delightful. Did you bring anything else back from London? Uh, Covid? No, no I didn't. Uh, fridge magnet um, and many happy memories. Aww. Now for something completely different, we're going to just have a little chat about something we found which we think we can agree genuinely is left-wing satire. Do you want to say what that is? No, it's your thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's a sketch from BBC's A Bit of Fry and Laurie starring Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie um, and it's a sketch about the police force. Peter, listen, would you like a coffee? Filter, espresso, cappuccino. We offer deep breath. Oh, that's very kind. Uh, do you have a tea? Tea? I don't think so, Peter. I'll just check that for you. Uh, hello, Maybelline, my love. It's Oliver here. Listen, my darling, do we carry a tea machine? Sorry, dear. Yes, I thought not. Many thanks, Pet. Sorry, Peter, no tea on the line. Don't don't worry. Sir, how may we help you? Well, uh, this is a police station, isn't it? Well, of course it is, Peter. Yes. Yes, because I tried to ring you earlier, but you, you must have changed your number. All I got was music playing in my ear. Um, the thing is, my car's been stolen. Your car's been stolen? Yes. Oh, Peter, I am sorry. Then <laughs> oh. you'd like us to do something about it? Oh, yes, please. Ah, okay. Well, have you had a look at our brochure, Peter? What pump? There wasn't there one? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, Peter, if you'd like to come with me, we'll get We offer basically three kinds of stolen car recovery service. That's the super, the lovely, and the gorgeous. Now, the super is a basic non-priority distributed car. The lovely is higher priority, and the gorgeous is A1 top priority. We put all our team onto it, field and creative, and that also includes a full waxing and balloting of your car on the cover. Obviously, Peter, the gorgeous is a more expensive service. I beg your pardon. Do you have an account with us? Oh, you're a shareholder, perhaps. Not a citizen, if that's what you mean. Oh, you you mean client? 
Look, I don't want to sound stupid, but I get back to England, I find my car's been stolen. Peter, you've been away. Did you perhaps miss the privatisation of the police force? <laughs> this is now a branch office of Brit Law PLC. Would you like to fill out a form? Out of form? Out of form? Mean fill in a form. Has everyone suddenly turned American? No, Peter. I shall need your address, I shall need your place and date of birth, your car registration number, and we should be able to have an account verified within 14 days, subject to status. This is insanity. I'm a taxpayer. Peter, everybody had a chance to buy shares at the time of issue. It was all supervised by a reputable merchant bank. Well, <laughs> by a merchant bank, anyway. <laughs> I'm leaving. No, Peter, not that way. Not that way, Peter. What? That's the high street. Yes. Well, the high street is owned by UK High Roads PLC. We're employed by them to make sure that only those with valid roadway passes use the street. But that's the Queen's Highway, for goodness sake. Surely I can use Queen's... that. Queen's... Oh, you have shares in the Royal Family PLC. That would be quite sufficient. <laughs> well, of course I haven't. Well, then, Peter, I'm afraid I must ask you to come with me to the restraining bar. I'd just like to put your hands on the detention knob. Um, but I haven't done anything. Not the gold member cuffs for you. I'm afraid we'll have to use the bronze master. No, no, absolutely no, Peter, not. No, Peter, no, Peter, Peter. What? <laughs> we haven't changed that much, then. Well, that was... That was delightful. That was good, wasn't it? That was very good. So, I mean, first of all, yes, I think you have found an example of a piece of left-wing satire, a left-wing comedy. I mean, that's a that works. It's making a left-wing point, isn't it? And it's comedy. So yeah, and it's perhaps important to note that it's doing so in the 1980s against the backdrop of privatization being a kind of continual source of anxiety in a a particular moment. A, around that in UK politics, isn't it? Whereas yeah. we're a bit further down the line now. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say there's obviously, it's, a, it's an obvious thing to say, but there's a lot that resonates, isn't there? The, the whole, mm. obviously everything being privatised, the PLC stuff, but even things like the, the joke about the bank being disreputable. Yeah. And what listeners might not have picked up on is that when Stephen Fry stands up, he's, originally he's sitting there looking like a sort of traditional police officer with his walkie-talkie and his police jacket, and then he stands up and he's got these unfeasibly jazzy trousers on hasn't he as if to say that privatization as well as making things inefficient and unsupportive and kind of missing the point of what they were ever set up to do is that it also kind of makes them vulgar yeah and there's, there's that kind of um manufactured politeness that you get in the service industry as well isn't it like everyone's calling each other dear and they're speaking in that register um, there's like one of my favourite lines is the one about the you don't fill out a form you fill in a form is everything turned American now? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in in amongst what's the kind of anti-Thatcherite um, rail against privatisation, there's a bit of just anti-American snobbery that I don't think is political, is it? It's just Fry and Laurie kind of objecting to the Americanization of language, which they tend to see and see in other places as being also vulgar and inaccurate. Yeah, I wondered if they perhaps see an association between privatization and Americanization. That's kind of the way yeah. the police force works is the way that the American health system works, for, for instance. Well, I think it's both, isn't it? The one enables the li the other kind of little dig at language and what's perceived as American norms in language. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's political, that's left wing and that's satire. Unlike saying Boris Johnson is a big wally or 
woke people are good and just saying that and saying the words that it takes to say that on the mass report that satirizes and it is making an unambiguously mm. left-wing case that privatization is is a bad thing that it leads to services being worse than they were before that it leads to inequity in the provision of services and that that this is a dangerous route to go down and it's i guess it's also making the point like look look at what would happen if the police force were privatized look how bad and stupid that would be and now think again if you want a privatized rail service or privatized gas and electricity or bt um which of course we, we now know all about don't we but um yeah it yeah. does it does the work doesn't it like it it shows its workings rather than just if that was a mass report they'd stand on the stage and they'd talk for five minutes about how privatization was wrong and the tories are evil Whereas mm. what they've done here is they've actually, they've followed it through, haven't they? So if we go down this route, but then that's satire. It's criti criticism with exaggeration, isn't it? What would happen if everything was privatised? It would look like this. This is laughably mm. absurd. Change of views. Does the work. Does yeah. The I mean, I can imagine in the MASH report, somebody standing up and saying, can you imagine if the police service was privatised? You'd go in, wouldn't you? You'd go in and your car would have been stolen and you'd be like, can you help me find my car? And they'd be like, oh no, you've got to fill out a form. You've got to sign up for this plan or that plan. And then that would be getting closer to satire, wouldn't it? If you, it, But kind of standing there as a person and saying, imagine this, this is what it would be like. It's still different from doing it in a sketch, isn't it? And I think the sketch show is perhaps quite well suited to a satirical um end isn't it because you you can perform it in a little snapshot and make a a brief satirical point and then move on to another satirical point or another silly point and it, it perhaps works better than somebody one singular person standing up there and saying imagine imagine if the police were privatized it's interesting that they also the high street plc is um is funny isn't it but then the the privatization of the royal family i don't i don't i wouldn't really care no would you care i'd prefer them to i wouldn't buy shares in them no i'd prefer them to be privatized and they wouldn't be funded by our tax that we can't choose to invest in them wouldn't it It'd be better yeah if they yeah. were yeah so it seems weird that they sort of briefly make that point as well i guess it comes down to that the anti-americanism thing as well doesn't it because it's like the royal family are sacrosanct they're british they they must never be subject to to market forces and to mm. the whims of the economy. But yeah, I would I would have preferred them not to do that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if the royal family was funded by Patreon, for example, that would <laughs> that would solve most of my issues with the royal family. And then what you'd get like whenever one of them was having a new baby, you'd get like you'd get the baby released a week before or pictures of the baby, probably, wouldn't you? That's right, you'd have different tiers of support. Yeah, absolutely. How much would you pay to see Prince Andrew prosecuted, for example? Like, I'd be a top... Oh, well... No, I still wouldn't, because you shouldn't have to, should you? Because the police should prosecute people. But, I mean, I thought you were going to say, how much would you pay to see, like, the wedding pictures or the baby pictures? And yeah. I think I might pay not to see those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we should fund them by Patreon, shouldn't we? That would be, um, that would be ace. Yeah, you heard it here first, everyone. Make the royal family yeah. Yeah, a Patreon. I mean, Harry's well on his way, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Harry's well on his way. Harry, yeah. Because he's got his Spotify podcast. Spotify, Netflix, yeah. But maybe... Yeah, but then fund it by Patreon and then the rest of us kind of 
socialist egalitarian um republicans just wouldn't have to see any of it ever yeah yeah maybe just the odd free episode of them on on spotify if you were yeah. a, a long walk or something but ideally not there's a lot of other things out there we've solved the problem left wing that's what left wing satire is not the mass report the yeah. mass report is a different thing yeah successful left wing satire exists in the 80s and it's done by fry and laurie <laughs> yeah glad we sorted that out <laughs> it's the public like, leave it to the white men from the public schools so we've talked about loads today uh have you got anything else you'd like to talk about joe uh not really no then i think we can wrap this up we can ride this pig into town so what can listeners do if they've engaged with the podcast defund the royal family um, what can they do? They could they could email us at satinomore at gmail.com. Say another thing they could do. They can follow us on Twitter and send us tweets at, at satinomore. Do the same on Instagram at talkaboutsatire. What kinds of things would we like to hear from them, Joe? If they've been inspired, changed, um, if it's had an impact on them, mm-hmm. not if yes. it's impacted them. All, all of those kinds of things, if they're aware of our work, if they've thought about it, if it's changed their mind about anything in any way or just if they fancy a natter yeah like and subscribe like and subscribe <laughs> thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time we know exactly what we're doing next time for once don't we oh yes it's going to be a really good one isn't it because we're going to talk about cards cards against humanity with dr nicole graham correct so join us next time for satire with horrible people but for now sit up shut up and eat our satire. Eat our satire. Bye. Bye. Bye, listeners.